Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. A delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. How was 2019 for you? And how was it for women in general? These are the questions we'll be asking in this episode, which is our annual Women's Podcast Review of the Year. For the Women's Podcast, one highlight was welcoming a new sponsor, Green and Blacks, which has resulted in a very tasty partnership. So thank you to all the team in Green and Blacks for their support. Here with me to discuss the year that was our Irish Times columnist Jennifer O'Connell, Syrian-born journalist Razan Ibrahim, and the woman of all the talents, Alison O'Connor, columnist with the Irish Examiner and most recently author of It's a Yes, a book about the abortion referendum. So here's our look back at 2019. Now, I wrote a column uh, for the Irish Times this week, basically summing up the last decade as poxy. But I decided I may have been in a rather grumpy humour when I wrote it, Alison. So do you want to sum up your, your, your decade in one word? Well, being, well, first of all, being grumpy when That's writing the column a word. is allowed. Okay. Second of all, it was great to see poxy in an Irish Times headline. And thirdly, um, you know, I think it wasn't, it wasn't the best of decades now, was it? Now, interestingly... This time, 10 years ago, give or take 48 hours, I gave birth. Oh, see, yes, which was a lovely entirely, um, yes. uh, added bonus to Christmas week. Actually, particularly because my mother died on the 23rd of December when I was very small. So it really turned Christmas week around for me. So what I, I mean, I obviously was in that cocoon of having just given birth and everything. So when I was looking at my own column, uh, what I was going to write this week and looking back on stuff, it was interesting to look at all of all of that and sort of remember. And clearly a lot of it still, you know, got into that cocoon because it was so overwhelmingly negative. And obviously, you, you know, were thinking of either your existing children or any new children that you happen to bring into the world and what was going to become of them. You know, everything was so negative in Ireland and we had fallen so far and had we reached the bottom and would we ever climb back up again? So I think the way to look at thinking something is poxy or feeling you've been negative is that to compare then, you know, with now. And I think that while there's still a lot wrong in the country, we have travelled an awful long way um, in terms of, you know, so many more people being in employment. There certainly being far more disposable income. We do have threats. It's beginning to sound like a party political broadcast. You know, we have the threat of Brexit and all of that. But I think if we just stand back in the round and look at it fairly, it's a hell of a lot better now for what is my now 10-year-old little girl, almost 10, 10 on Saturday, you know, compared to what it was back then. Jennifer, Actually, when I think back, those 10 years began for me, in fairness, 
with having the privilege of witnessing Barack Obama's inauguration, which was an absolute ride, to be honest with you. And then it all went downhill from there, as we know. Looking back for yourself, I mean, you are the person who has a perspective on this. You talk about you don't have to live in Dublin. It doesn't have to be all awful. It isn't all awful. Is that how you remember the last decade? Well, you might be disappointed by the word that I've chosen because I did have a little bit of time to think about this this morning and I thought uh, the word that sums up the past decade for me is ferocious in every possible sense of the word. You know, the way my grandparents would have used it to describe the weather. Jesus, it's ferocious. But also, you know, just cruel. There's a ferocity in public discourse now that wasn't there 10 years ago. It's divisive. It's been relentlessly awful in so many ways. But the glimmer of hope that has emerged is the ferocity in young women and in young people that we've seen in the climate change movement and that kind of thing. So it's not without hope. And, you know, for me, I suppose I look at it at a a global political level. It's been absolutely grim and awful and, as I said, divisive and ugly. On a personal level, it, it was a lovely decade. You know, so I'm kind of in that strange position where, like Alison at the start of the decade, I had two small kids. I remember watching Barack Obama's inauguration with uh, my 13-year-old who was then... Were we talking 2008? Eight. She was just two. And I remember distinctly because she wanted to watch Peppa Pig and I wanted to watch the inauguration and we had a ferocious row about it. Um, uh, and, you know, we sort of we went through the, this process that a lot of people went through of kind of looking at each other and looking at ourselves and looking at the lifestyle that we could afford in Dublin and just going, is it really worth it? So we did a bit of a grown up gap year that took us to Australia and America and lasted actually three years, came back with an extra baby and uh, and a very different perspective on the world. So, you know, for, on a personal level, it was it was a really interesting decade, very exciting with some real highs and not too many lows, thankfully. Um, but in a global political perspective, it has been ferocious. Because it started with Obama and ended with the pussy grabber. Um, Razan, I hate to introduce that word into the women's podcast, but I'm afraid it must be because we have there, there has been so much of that. But then again, me too and all of that sort of thing. Now, Razan, before I ask you about your word for the decade, tell us a little bit about yourself. So uh, my name is Razan Ibrahim. I was born in Syria, Latakia, and I did my um, undergrad in English literature, Irish literature and American literature. So actually, even before I arrived to Ireland, I had a really good knowledge about what is Ireland, the history of Ireland, Yeats, uh, Bernard Shaw. Uh, my thesis and my final project was on Waiting for Godot. So it was kind of really um, interesting country for me to come. So when I arrived to Ireland, my main reason was to do my master's in uh, English language teaching. And then my plan was to finish and go back to Syria, have my own business and continue my life. But things went unexpectedly um, wrong. So uh, the war broke up 2011 and I witnessed around four months of the war in Syria. And um, at that time, when I graduated from here, it was almost impossible to go back. So I had to start and I had to um, work many jobs, move to Dublin. I worked on social media And I am now a journalist with Storyful News Agency for uh, four years now. So this is like a very short, um, like a story, how I came to Ireland. Um, Roseanne, we are not worthy to have you here. (laughs) Um, How are your family doing? Are they still in Syria? I have my mom and dad. They still live in Syria. My brother and sister came to Ireland in 2015 and they are both um, living here, they are working here and 
like really having good life. They good. like it so much. Me too, you know. So that's been a decade of two halves exactly. for you. Exactly. That's why I was coming to my decade was yes. unbelievable mix of everything. Yes. Mix of achievements because it is something um, to do my master's. I had to work a lot to, to save for the um, fees for university, 12,000. And I had zero when I started that. So I had to work a lot and worked in Kuwait, saved money around 10 years. And then I got it. So, and I am in Ireland. So I started my university uh, to, do, to do my master's. And I had only one goal is to succeed. There was no uh, failure at all in my vocabulary. So I had to do it. And I did. And it was, as I said, like a really year of achievement, a decade of achievement, and as well, realizing and understanding myself more. Who who I am, you know, that was a big question for me. And Razan, looking back on the on the on the on, on what the awful tragedy of Syria, looking back on the state of the world, looking back on how it impacted Absolutely. on you, and then looking at how you put yourself down to achieving, how would you sum up the decade? Was it generally okay? Um, I would when it comes for me, because I'm from Syria, and I'm, I'm, if I'm going to look at the decade, I have to look at Syria, because Syria's war actually affected the whole world. And what we are seeing of popularism, part of it is the failure of, save, of solving Syrian war. So I would say, if I would summarize, I would do it in two words. The first one, or the, in, in, in two kind of small kind of phrases. The first one, failure of international community. It is a real example how an international community failed to tackle and stop wars. Number two, uh, I would say social media. This decade was um, like the, the period of social media in all negativity and all positivity. And it it is actually now shaping our society, our world. It is it is evolving to a new world system. We don't know what it's going to be. It is, it's in the way of evolving and, and, and engaging. So, but I think because of the social media, we are going towards a new world system. Jennifer, you wrote a column which was um, very widely read about mobile phones. Uh, we're talking about 2019 now and the effect that had on us all. Um, and the whole the whole intrusion of mobile phones, the really evil side of them. And you got a huge response to that. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, because I suppose I, I was reporting um, on the Creatial trial and one of the things that that occurred uh, to me in the aftermath of that and, you know, amongst conversations with the editors here was that we got a real insight into the way that our children are using technology. Um, and I think a lot of people in this country might have been quite blinkered, me included, um, about the extent to which, you know, you, a child can, not that all children are, but that a child can access very violent graphic content, um, very extreme pornography where they, they can be subjected to bullying, um, trolling, abuse, grooming and all of that is on this device that they're now carrying around en masse in their pockets, usually from the age of 12, you know, when they're when they're at confirmation stage. So I, I'd been kind of, you know, thinking about these things in my own life because I have a daughter who's 13 and a son who's nearly 12 um, and, and both of them big fans of technology. So it was coming up at home, you know, people, other kids were getting mobile phones and 
I just had this unease about the idea of giving my child access, not that they don't have access to the internet. Um, we have, you know, laptops at home that they can use and my son has a tablet that he, that he uses a lot. Uh, so it's not about not giving them access to the internet, but I was just very, very uncomfortable with the way that I think, you know, smartphones have shaped so much of our thinking. And I feel like we've sort of sleptwalked into this situation where we're handing over these devices to our children and we really don't understand the long-term repercussions that they're going to have on their psychology, on their ability to interact with each other and, you know, the risks that there are And you there. reached a rather radical conclusion, well, which was... It's, it's so be radical, Kathy, but it is. I was really surprised at the response that I got. So my daughter does not have a smartphone. She's yes. 13 and a half now. She's halfway through first year or for end of first term in first year. Uh, she has a Nokia phone and, and quite happy with it, to be honest. You know, the old fashioned push button Nokia. She can text her friends. A couple of her friends have Nokias as well. She kind of keeps a running toll of the Nokia account and she comes home triumphant when they get a new member. And she told me recently we're up to eight now between first and second year. There are eight Nokias versus, you know, 70 whatever uh, that is smartphones. That is achievement by both of you, <laughs> Her. Alison, you know, she yeah. makes it easy, I have to say, because she's she understands, you know, she understands why we're doing it. And um, the next battle will be with her with her younger brother. Well, it's going to get interesting, but I think you've taken a stand and people really did respond to it. Alison, one of the things we got, we're going to talk about from 2019 was the awful shenanigans around the Brexit and the female MPs who stood down amid much talk of vitriol and abuse and death threats. So we're kind of back to the old mobile phone thing and Facebook and everything. Was it as bad as we think it was? Because, you know, there was a bit of blowback about that saying men were also getting a lot of abuse and sort of, you know, that that proportionately women did no worse than men and that sort of thing. What's your impression of that? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly in the case of British MPs, I think all of them were advised, for instance, to get panic buttons at home. And um, that that there there was a a level of universal abuse and that's a very kind of a sad reflection of where UK society is at at the moment. But I also think there's absolutely no doubt but that uh, female MPs um, suffered it in a far more acute manner, uh, as women do on on social media. And um, I think in terms of death threats, rape threats, um, uh, you know, and all of that, and you saw it in the number of women that uh, that stood down and a number of high profile women. So out of 58 MPs who didn't go forward in the election, 18 were women. Now, that mightn't sound that much. But if you look at the idea, the natural attrition, you know, somebody coming to the end of their political career. In this case, it was women who were in their prime, if you like, and who, who decided not to not to go forward. And if you look even at there's one pretty well known, uh, Heidi Allen, she's a former conservative when, you know, ended up the, the Lib Dems. And I remember there was one quote I read and I went and looked it up. She was saying nobody in any job should have to put up with threats, aggressiveness, being shouted at on the street, sworn at on social media, having the panic alarm at home. We saw what happened to Stella Creasy, the Labour MP, um, in her constituency. She was heavily pregnant and there was um, ads, display ads uh, put up of uh, fetuses and saying stop uh, stop Stella billboard um, and then finally which I think was one of the standout appalling moments for me in terms of women was when the Labour MP Paula Sheriff stood in the House of Commons and implored uh, Boris Johnson to moderate his language where she spoke about uh, what had happened Joe Cox and and all of that and he basically responded he said I never heard such humbug in my life which was actually just kind of um, it just took my breath away that uh 
that that could be the response. When um, it come to the lows of the year, that'd be one of them. Jennifer? Yeah, I just, one of the things that struck me, because I've been reporting um, in the UK on, on Brexit and the British election four times this year, um, and I noticed over the course of the year that I felt women in the general population, as well as female MPs, are really being put off from even talking about politics by how toxic it's become. I think, you know, I particularly on the last two trips, which were earlier um, in December and, and the end of November, I noticed I would have to approach about eight to ten women to get one of them to even stop and speak to me. And very often, if they were with a man, they would defer to his view of politics. And, and that's new. I've never seen that before as a reporter. Um, and I, I think it is the toxicity of it um, and, and the kind of the violence of the language. I think that women are just pulling back and they're, they're withdrawing. And I think, you know, and I, that might have been a product of the area that I was in. I was in very traditional working class areas where women may not um, have reached maybe as high levels of education as they might in London. And um, I might have seen something different if I was there. But I think that story is very real, uh, that women are just opting out of being interested, opting out of having a view, opting out of discussing it with each other, certainly not wanting to talk to the media about it. And that's, that's dangerous. For and democracy. I think that's very interesting because it's also, if you like, um, when women look at it, you are looking at an exceptionally male circle of power who are ramping up, um, you know, the abuse and the vitriol and, and using that sort of language. Um, and there is Theresa May left and basically uh, the testosterone count has gone has gone through, through the, the roof. roof. Yeah. And this is part of the problem, even generally. It's the same in politics here, where you're trying to attract more women and they see it as too male, um, you know, far too macho and all of that. We've certainly seen that in the last couple of days uh, with what's going on between uh, Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin in the doll, uh, which is sort of almost toddler-like in its, its behaviour. like a pair of nine-year-olds? It was Pierce Doherty said his kids yes. at home, um, you know, would, would, wouldn't fight in the, in, the, in the manner that they would. And I think that women kind of go, Jesus, I couldn't be arsed with that. It's just ridiculous. Razan, does this all sound quite harmless to you? I mean, I would actually to... relate this to journalism because... Uh, women journalists, they are exposed to more abuse on social media, more than male journalists. And like I personally would, would see that. And, and just to echo as well, like sometimes I would be reluctant to post on social media or Twitter. I would say, OK, if I posted what reactions I'm going to get, what abuse I'm going to get. So this is something that actually made me always think twice before I post or do anything on social media. So this is, I think the social media played a big role because people criticizing and abusing, they have no names. They have um, not real accounts. So they feel kind of free without any consequences. But actually they are doing damage, you know, in, in a way or another. They are making people afraid to communicate, afraid to speak up sometimes, you know, because of the abuse. On the other hand, Razanne, the one of the things that I watched with great joy this year were the women leading the marches, the protests in Sudan. Talk to me a little bit about that, because this is this is good news. Absolutely. I'll tell you, this is not only in Sudan, the region in general, like Middle East and North Africa, was in 2019 an exception when it comes to the women rights and women's movement, it's the first time ever. Like I follow women's rights and movement and feminism in the Middle East, like on daily basis. This, this is something really deep in my heart. It's my passion. And, and since I was a child, you know, I was like kind of really advocate. But this year was exceptional. 2019, it's the first time we see a woman standing on a car in front 
of thousands of men and leading the protest and chanting and everybody is just reacting to her, um, like encouraging her. And she, she didn't need any encouragement, honestly. She was like brave by herself, like really strong woman wearing her traditional Sudanese a white robe with beautiful gold earring. It's iconic image, you know, in, 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 in the Middle East, you know, and in North Africa to see this kind of powerful woman doing that. And uh, that was really a turning point, I have to say. It was unbelievable. When I saw the image, I cried myself. And I was like, there is something's going to happen Things are going forward. And Sudan was, as I said, an, a very successful example of successful revolution. Okay? Was, that, was that facilitated by social media, Razan? Absolutely. I think, yes. I think... So this is the upside. Th- this is maybe the positive side yes. of the social media, how it is making the, the voice of these women heard. How, how their stories are being told in a positive, powerful way. Because there is an image or stereotypical pictures from the West towards this region that women are submissive, women are oppressive. This is the image, oh, they, they are just, they don't want equality. This is 100% not true. A women from the region is like any other women in the whole world. They want equality, they are, um, they want to have um, equal opportunities, they want change like anybody else, they want justice like anybody else, like any other woman in the whole world. In Sudan, Razan, the women, women can be flogged just for wearing trousers. So what precisely was this about? Can you name a few things that they were demanding, specific things that they were looking for? Um, that was actually before. Now, in just last week, this law has changed just last week. And uh, they said, like, women can wear whatever they want. And that's exactly because of these brave women stepping, like, in front of everybody and, and, and like, shouting for freedom and equality. Now, uh, I think at that stage when women were in the street, were asking, f- like, like, what men were asking to. It's, it's more national. Um, national movement, they wanted just to get rid of dictatorship, democracy, because that was essential, and and equality. And then women were asking more more rights in terms of marriage, divorce, and freedom to wear whatever they want, and they got it recently, and then more representative of women in politics and government. Um, I suppose what would worry us a little, Razan, just to finish off that segment, is is that the Arab Spring was so full of hope, and we all watched that with s- such joy. And you don't fear that this may be maybe turned back. That you you do believe this is this is moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I'd say every nation uh, would struggle. I don't think there is a movement where it happened by day and night, and then. The next day, it was perfect life. Democracy is established. And yeah, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen, especially the Middle East is very complex region. And we will suffer. We will pay the price for a lot of things. But eventually, the democracy, the way to democracy is, is challenging, is is difficult. We will lose people. We will lose a lot of things. But the purpose and our objective is democracy. So that's the main of it, I'd say. But honestly, 
if the Middle East, North Africa, were left on their own without interference from international um, powers, we would have have solved our problems. We would have lost people, but eventually we will say, yeah, this is the end. We need to shake hands and then continue. Like actually what happened in Ireland, like the the, uh, Good Friday Agreement was a great example of after all the struggle, eventually people shaked hands and yeah, that's, this is our country, we need to build it. But in, in the Middle East and North Africa, there was a lot of international yeah. interference. Proxy wars. Proxy, yeah. Exactly, proxy war. And this played a very negative role in actually achieving something, you know. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Can I just say one of the other things that gave me joy, I think it was only last week, was during those riots in India um, by the, I think it was by lawyers. And there were awful scenes of police battering uh, young men in particular. And there were women surrounded. I don't know if you, any of you saw that footage where women surrounded one man in particular to defend him. And it was extraordinary. And that... Those are images that will stay with me, actually. Jenny, staying on the good news stories, two fantastic women came out front this year internationally. Tell us about um, Jacinda Ardern and Sana Marin. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I think it goes back to what Radhan is saying. Well, you know, on some levels, we feel like our freedom to sort of have a viewpoint is being eroded. On the other hand, actually, the overall momentum is towards progress and towards more women in power. And like you say, I mean, we see, you know, on, on a, a kind of a social level, Greta Thunberg emerging um, in Sweden. But, you know, Jacinda Another Ardern. a fantastic piece by you, which I think is one of the most widely read in the entire world. <laughs> I don't know what, about that. What was the title of it? Why does Greta Thunberg Why trigger? So many, so triggering to certain men, yeah. <laughs> and I think we're we're seeing more and more of that as as time goes on. Um, but yeah, the two I suppose standout women in politics uh, of this year for me, or two of the standout women in politics, would be Jacinta Ardern in in New Zealand, um, who showed such incredible leadership during the Christchurch shooting, um, and more recently the new Finnish premier, who's the youngest uh, leader, the the world's youngest premier, and um, at thirty four, Sanna Marin. Um, and I think those, you know, those two women in particular show, I think, what's possible um, despite all of the negativity that we see about women and despite the backlash uh, that we're seeing as we get more progress, there are more and more people trying to silence women on, on platforms and on social media. And I'm, I'm saddened to hear you say, Roseanne, that you, you know, you hold yourself back because I do think it has a chilling effect. Um, but Sanna Marin, I didn't know much about her uh, before she became Premier, but um, she has an inc- she's an incredibly admirable person who has a really interesting backstory. She was the first in her family to finish high school and to attend university. Um, and she grew up in poverty and ended up working a, a kind of a sales job um, before getting into politics. Uh, and that has been used against her in very predictable ways. Um, the, the Interior Minister of Estonia, um, a 70-year-old far-right populist who... Uh, for some reason, seems to feel threatened by um, a gorgeous, smart, intelligent, driven 34-year-old in, in Finland. What did he say about her? Um, he called her a sales girl. He referred yeah. to her as a sales like, girl. Like they have with Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez, Ocasio Ocasio Cortez, exactly. who they refer to as a bartender, yeah. I think. Yeah, exactly. And, and we've seen the same thing in the UK as well. So uh, she responded, I thought, brilliantly on Twitter. Um, one of the standout tweets of the year for me, she said she was extremely proud of Finland. Um, and she said, here a child from a poor family can get educated and achieve many things in their lives. The cashier of the shop can become prime minister. Mm-hmm. 
A bit like in the way, actually, that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez responded on, again on social media with that dance. Do you remember? Yeah. And she was just... And the other thing that fascinates me the about... The dance in the, the corridor. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. About Finland is, and I think it'll be very interesting to watch, and it will be watched, is that in her new government, there, first of all, she's a female finance minister as well, and there are 12 female and seven male ministers. So it's wonderful and it's really positive, but it also worries me a little bit because I'm thinking if things don't work out, there'll definitely be a touch of what Albert Reynolds might have called that's women for you. Well, Alison, I'm getting around to that because that kind of worries me slightly because it's been an awkward year for women as well. I mean, on the one hand, we actually had a a, a woman who won won the Nobel Prize for Economics, the youngest ever to win it, and 47, I think, and also only the second woman for economics, which is not an area women have been famously involved in. on the other hand, we have some of the some of the women really haven't quite got there. I mean, Theresa May was a bit of a disaster. Yes, she was. With I mean, I always think at this time. A couple of years ago, the former Labour junior minister Kathleen Lynch held held a conference in Dublin Castle. It was around that it was to do with women and, and uh, political quotas, and she stood at the end and gave this fabulous speech. And she finished it by saying, "Before I die, I want to be able to vote for a mediocre woman." So that, in other words, you know, that the standard, again, even poor old Theresa May, uh, you know, inevitably and without us even realising it. And us as women do it, too, because it's it's the way we're brought up. It's 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 in us. Uh, we'll judge her to a higher standard. And you even see, we'll say, in the instance of Verona Murphy uh, recently dropped as a candidate by Fine Gael, uh, it was women actually in from the political arena who were saying to me, oh God, I hope this now isn't seen as, oh, here we go. This is what happens with female quotas and wanting more women. Because again, it's if that had happened with a man, it would just be seen as a politician. Whereas there are still so few women and women are, are judged to a higher standard. It's seen as a female who's fecked up. Well, in fairness, you know? Jennifer, we'll talk about Verona for a minute because she might have been a Bit of an exception, Alison, to all of that. I mean, what she actually said, I mean, she went off on one that she didn't need to go off on. And then multiple there was, times, actually. Yeah, multiple times. Point, and yeah. then there was that video, video at the yeah. end, which yeah. was rather like one of those super pack videos that had mm-hmm. nothing to do with me, Governor, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So talk to me a bit about it because she's actually from, you're, you're near enough to Well, her. I'm Waterford and she's yes. Wexford. Um, but I have I have been in Wexford reporting on her. I spent a day on the ground there and I found it really interesting, actually. And it, in many ways, it kind of highlighted the chasm between Dublin and the rest of Ireland and the urban and rural divide again, which is where I think if populism does flourish in this country, it's going to be in that chasm. Um, because I think, you know, if you look at it from a Dublin point of view, and I, I, I you know, I div- because I divide my time between Dublin and, and rural Ireland and because I travel a lot in the country, I, I, I think that I do see that yeah, chasm. I, I see how much it's widening, you know, and I know from my from the Dublin point of view, it's a simple story of an aspiring politician in rural Ireland jumping on the populist bandwagon and saying things to get votes. And, you know, and, and what she said was nonsensical and it was it was potentially dangerous. And, and several times, as you pointed out, Jennifer. Yeah, she yes. said it several times. So it wasn't a sort of a, a one ill-advised comment. She actually, you know, she said it first of all to our colleague Jennifer Bray and then she went on radio on Sunday and repeated it. And it was about how um, the Islamic State is a, is a factor in immigration here and, you know, it's people shocking. as young as three. You know, when I heard I was shocked. No evidence, nothing. You know, like, if you are, this is a very dangerous statement yeah. to say. Did you feel you were, that you should have been deprogrammed, Razan? No, I mean, it's at least, uh, if you are saying that, give figures, you know, give, okay, Evidence, what yeah. are you, what are your grounds? Why are you saying that? This is beyond. 
and I was really shocked when I when I heard it. Mm. But I, it it should be like I think really it affected a lot and the reputation and even the sentiment for refugees. That's very dangerous to play this game. And she seemed to be conflating like a number of, of different things which were completely unconnected. They had absolutely no relationship. You know, when I talk to people in, in the haulage industry about, you know, why do you think why do you think she said that and what do you think she meant? They said, well, I think she's probably talking about the problems that truck drivers face, you know, and it was around the same time that 16 um, migrants were found in the back of a truck in Ross Lair and they said, she's probably referring to that, but we'll then be clear about it and say that. Yeah. But what and, was really and, and interesting... And what has that got to do with deprogramming and three-year-old, three-year-old children? children yeah, um, it, it, you know, but Jennifer's getting I think it is. I mean... As someone who's a culture originally, but now lives in, in Dublin. Um, well, I'm still a culture, can I point out? You're a cake and eat it merchant, uh, <laughs> Sheridan. Um, I think that, I think it's a very, and I mean, this is going to be a really big deal in the in the next general election as to how you, you know, that if people are unhappy or they feel under threat, and I think without doubt, um you know, the government, the Department of Justice could handle it better. Although, again, I have some sympathy there because it's very tricky. Um, that the feeling is very real. And I don't know what Jennifer might have. And I don't know what the answer is uh, as to how you head this off, what you do about it. Something like the comments Noel Grealish made. He obviously feels that's going to play really well in his constituency. And his constituency is of the outside of it's a very cosmopolitan Galway yeah. City is such a cosmopolitan place you know what I mean obviously with, with, with rural elements as well uh, and what the answer to that is it's sort of it really feels above my pay grade I, I, I don't think know so Have you a theory as to what was really going on with the Yeah Lolo? I do was actually it? and I think you know when, when she got 9,500 or whatever it was votes yeah. in the local election it's I think people looked at it and yeah. sort of went God you know she's tapping into this latent um, sentiment that's really terrifying this anti-immigrant sentiment I don't think that's the reason why you know when I was there for the day and I spoke to people they, they liked her despite those comments, not because of them. Uh, and they were very clear about that. She's seen as somebody who's very effective. Um, again, she has a really interesting backstory. Like she left school at yes. 14. Uh, she had her daughter at 22. She bought her first truck, I think, around the same time. Um, went back and did her leaving at 35 and then went on and did a law degree. And as, as seen as uh, she was a very effective president. She should have been an absolute role model. She should exactly. have been. Yes. And, it, it's, it, you know, it's a, and it's a real shame. But I don't think that she got 9,500 votes in Wexford because of the comments that she made about immigrants. I think people there were embarrassed and disappointed by those comments, regardless of whether they were going to vote for her or not. But some people chose to... Now, I definitely met people who said she's absolutely right and political correctness has gone mad and all of the usual. But that wasn't the majority of the sentiment. The majority of the sentiment there I met her was, yeah, but she's a fantastic woman and did you know that she bought her first truck and did you know that she set up a haulage business and did you know that she succeeded in a male-dominated environment? So for me, the lesson out of that was we need to not, we need to get beyond the headlines and we need to really explore the nuances of what's going on in these communities if people are, are sympathetic to that kind of a point of view, then why are they? And if they're not sympathetic to that point of view, then I think as journalists, we need to be a bit more careful in how we tell these stories. Because if we keep feeding the stereotypes about rural Ireland and we're, people in rural Ireland keep believing the stereotypes about people in Dublin being out of touch and not caring, we'll end up like Britain. You know, and having spent do four times, four think trips. Then, do you think then that it's that, that, that for people like me, will say, saying that, you know, this is a real worry in the next general election is overstating it, that it's fueling it? No, because I do think it is a, a legitimate worry. Yeah. But I think we have to be really careful not to characterise entire people in entire right. communities like in Balnamore or wherever it is, that we have to be careful not to write everybody off um, as being anti-immigrant. And I think we do need to listen to people's concerns, however 
queasy they might make us and however ill-expressed they are. I see, Razan, you're, yeah. you're nodding vigorously no, in the positive I agree, there. I yes. really totally agree mm. that we have to understand open discussion and not to give labels for everybody who has an, a different opinion. Like even myself, I would have a friend's we would go for dinner and they will have, for example, opinion about immigration or about refugees. But for myself, I think it is important to talk to, to each other, to uh, open discussion and then to have understand why these people are thinking this way. What can we do to to prevent it? And, and I think part of it is just to tell more um, real stories of, of people here, their contribution, all of that, that is really essential in, in opening um, and making the conversation more positive. But I really agree. And I am, as I said, like I'm, I live here for almost nine years and I'm always open to anybody who has different opinion. And I'll talk to them and I'll chat to them. And it happened a few times, for example, I got like one message is very, like really anti-immigrant message. And I was like, Listen, do you want to have, do you want to go for coffee? Let's go uh, for coffee because face to face and uh, human interaction is very important. And we did. Like we went for coffee, somebody I've never met before. But it was really lovely. He, he hasn't changed his mind. <laughs> <laughs> was, he, was, he, was he a nice boy? But, yeah. <laughs> but he was kind of started to a little bit open up. You know, like open his mind, see that he is not the center of the world. There are more people living here, doing something, you know, like trying to achieve. So I, that's why I believe uh, interaction, human interaction, really essential in, in making the conversation positive. OK, I'm going to wind up that segment by saying what I think of really is, and I agree with all of you at various levels, but I still think of Donald Trump saying he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he would still hold on to his base. So I think a certain amount of talking, but also maybe there's a possibility of extending too much tolerance to some of these people. And that also, to me, is requires some very, very careful balancing. Let us be really, really lightheaded here about something. I did not see Love Island, right? But Alison, did you see Love Island? No. Oh, you're just great. Did you well, see Love Island, Reza? No, I have not seen it. We're outing <laughs> ourselves. Did you not see Love You no. didn't see Maura Higgins. <laughs> I mean, no, she, you, know you couldn't miss Maura Higgins. <laughs> exactly. you know, you Maura transcended the telly. You didn't the have to watch. And I mean, she it's did. the day I heard Sean O'Rourke discuss Maura's fanny flutters. <laughs> you just knew she <laughs> she was in wider society. And she, she, I have, you know, from what I heard of her, uh, she sounded like uh, a fabulous woman, I have to say. And I she think really she's did. a job now on, on ITV and The Breakfast. She's uh, a reporter on GMTV or something, I think. Yeah, yeah so uh, all's well with Maura anyway at this stage. Um, um, Wagatha Christie. Oh, Does anybody see. remember this? I mean, that was one of my ups of the year, I have to say. It was say. a total high point, wasn't it? And we it all was. needed, we needed, we needed more, but we needed Wagatha Christie, I think, more just to lift us out of the gloom and the seriousness. Just and remind people, that was Colleen grim. Rooney versus... Colleen Rooney, who... Emma, um, some, not Emma Vardy. Rebecca Vardy. Rebecca Vardy, yes. You can't remember, you're supposed to say it correspondent was... correspondent in Belfast. <laughs> it was dot, 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 Rebecca Vardy. That's the ellipsis <laughs> reached a whole new level of, of public infamy. And she, she suspected that somebody, she knew, I think, somebody was planting stories about her in the tabloids. So she launched a year-long campaign of sleuthing, um, closing down her Instagram account to all but her chief suspect, Rebecca Vardy, and 
putting stories on her Instagram stories that only Rebecca Vardy would see. And so when those stories appeared in the tabloids, she had her woman. Um, I think one of the stories concerned flooding of a basement and yes, another one, yes, uh, something yes. to do with... Um, uh, having another baby, I think, or gender selection. Or gender yeah, selection, yeah, that was yeah. it. Um, so, yeah, and, and so she earned herself the title Wagatha Christie, which was just It was amazing. fantastic. And can I also say it's a terrible reflection on British media that they actually picked up those stories. But that British media is a whole other ball game, isn't it? Rosanna, are you fa- were you familiar with Wagatha Christie? No, I'm not. Are you, you're leading a very serious life, I'd say. <laughs> Don't concern yourself with such matters. Um, um, Harry and Meghan. Have you a view on I Harry do, and yeah, Meghan and I the do. law and the media? I, you know, I know that after they did that documentary, everybody was saying, you know, all these very po-faced royal correspondents, you know, that they shouldn't have done it. And I appreciate this whole idea that they living high on the hog on the taxpayer's dollar. Um, but I actually had a lot of sympathy for her. I also have a lot of sympathy for Harry when he sees what happened to his mother, who I know was able to play the game, but was a very vulnerable woman. And I think that um, the stuff that's been said about Meghan, that's been uh, written about her, um, I mean, right down to someone holding their tummy when they're pregnant, it becoming a point of of criticism. Um, I just think it's very, I mean, the royals were always open to that. And you could say, you know, justifiably so in in many cases, certainly with all the stuff that's going on now with uh, Prince Andrew. Um, (laughs) Indeed. But... There's it's it's so reflective. I think the absolute meanness and nastiness is just very reflective of where British society is at at the moment for me. You know, and I do I ha- I really do have sympathy. Jennifer. I think Harry needs to put on his big boy pants. I really do, and just grow up a little bit. You know, and I, I, can I just say that I have aspirations to being the Irish Times as po-faced royal correspondent, <laughs> having been at their wedding at with an asterisk beside it, <laughs> as in standing on the street outside, um, quite a, quite a distance away from the actual church. But I, look, I'm a huge fan, or have been a huge fan of of Harry and Meghan, and I've, I've written quite a few pieces where I've outed myself as a, a Harry and Meghan fan. But I was really disappointed uh, by this, and I, I just think you know. A little bit of perspective from Harry in particular wouldn't go astray. It was the language in the statement where he talked about uh, we've continued to put on a brave face as so many of you can relate to. Uh, I cannot begin to describe how painful it has been. Now he's talking about a few stories in the tabloids about uh, her oh, wearing the wrong clothes. So. Have, have, have you kept campaign. up with this story? Actually not very much but I would say that uh, they are under under the media attention. So there will be always nonstop uh, criticism against them. But in in particular, Megan was um, exposed to social media campaign and misinformation, even some of the misinformation saying that her her belly, like pregnant belly, is actually fake. So that was like really a lot of misinformation around the story. But I, I, I honestly see it. They are from the, the royal family, monarchies, um, a system that it is outdated <laughs> and it is unacceptable like this this 2020 we still have monarchy in the world you know especially for a democratic um, England you know that is for me I find it very strange and so they are under the media attention. They will be all the time. And they ha- that's part of the pact. You know, yeah. their lifestyles are funded because they provide a service, which is to lift the public out of the gloom. So, you know, they're not ordinary figures who just were catapulted into the spotlight. You know, in a sense, yes, yes she but is. You, but, but look, to she, me, she, it she made all a very comes down decision. to there's no humanity at all. Humanity has been lost in discussions of Megan. A woman who had just given birth to her first child who was in a vulnerable position. To be white. 
who also happens exactly Which I, think I was about to, to get yes. into that and also has had all this complications with her family and her dad and all of that oh I take God, all, yes. I mean I, I completely take Chrisanne's position why are they there at all you know what I mean but they're still human beings yeah no I, and know? I completely accept that I just think it's such a foolish move to sue the media I think it's a battle that they can never win well and I think we do need to introduce Rosanne to the Daily Mail sidebar of shame we'll, we'll chat <laughs> to you about that sidebar of shame Rosanne do you know about the sidebar of shame no it, it is it, it, I murder my daughters for having paying any attention to there, it. There is one one sort of point I think we should make before we move on from, from Harry and Meghan which is that it is astonishing that more column inches have been devoted to how Meghan treats her staff than have been devoted to Prince Andrew. You know, who, who particularly up until the, the TV interview in which he seemed more appalled by the idea that he was once in a Pizza Express in Woking than actually the idea <laughs> of middle-aged men having sex with And wasn't teenagers. capable of sweating? Yeah. Can you imagine an ordinary white man making that claim in view of the accusations against him? It's unbelievable. Now, let's talk about the highs and lows of the year. I think we've covered a few of them there. But Jennifer, did you have a high and a low? Well, I might start with the low because I always like to start with the bad news first and, yeah. and then the good news. Um, I got, and I am lucky in that this year and this decade, I haven't actually had any real personal lows, thankfully. Um, but I think one of the depressing constants of this year for me and one of the things I'll probably remember about this time was just being a woman with somewhat of a, a public profile um, and a platform. The level of vitriol in the online space has intensified beyond anything I've ever experienced. And I've been on Twitter since the very beginning, since 2009. Um, and I just find it's become so personal and so consistently aggressive. I could be tweeting about the most banal thing. I could put a headline out of an article I wrote. And I ha- I'll have people, every, it runs the spectrum from kind of mansplaining my own articles back to me, right up to like very personal abuse about how I look and, you know, about the, the ones that really hurt me are the ones about what a bad parent I am because I have a job and I obviously don't love my children. And why did I bother? And it's not just men, it's it's women too. It's predominantly men. But I've had an email from a woman wondering why I even bothered to have a third child since I can't be bothered to spend any time at home with my children. Um, so that's a low, to be honest. Jennifer, just, just, to, just to finish off that... You see the abuse that Laura Koonsberg, the BBC's mm. political editor, has got online. Now, in my view, she, she should stay off Twitter because she's got it wrong a few times. On the other hand, is that what's going to happen? Are women just going to start? Like Roseanne there was saying, who's, who, there's a chill about it now. You think twice. Is that what's going to happen? Are I women just going to just... It, yeah. I think it's a, it's a chilling effect. I remember talking to a lawyer earlier on in, in the year about, you know, about about issues like democracy. And she made this point to me. She said there is a chilling effect. It is dangerous for democracy if people are watching what they say, if we're, we're, we're editing our own free speech and we're editing our own ability to communicate with each other and to make points and to engage because we're afraid of the backlash. Uh, and I, I don't see men getting it to the same extent. I look at some of the replies to my male colleagues' tweets, very similar tweets maybe that I might have put out about a story and I just don't see the same level of hostility directed to them by and large and and in general. So, you know, I think that that's a low and that's something that uh, I'm struggling with and I I feel myself pulling back from, I barely use any social media except for Twitter now uh, and I really kind of have to force myself onto Twitter. Like it can put a pile over my whole Saturday, which is obviously a lovely day off and a day with the kids and a a family day. Um, But, you know, when you feel like it's part of your responsibility to not just write your stories and research them, um, edit them and put them out there. But now you have to kind of share them. It's part of the and job. it's so sad because Twitter used to be a, a, a great platform. It's um, a small thing, but a few weeks ago, I just turned off my notifications on Twitter and it made an enormous... I mean, I'm, I, I feel almost stupid saying it, actually. But if your phone is pinging all the time and it's part of the addictive thing and, you know, where you get the hit um, and now it doesn't ping and I forget. And then I, after a while, I think, oh, yeah, I must... Um, 
look on look on Twitter and see what's happening because I mean it's part of the addictiveness of the smartphone and of social media so that you have to try and you know I mean that look that's compared to what Jennifer has just told us that she's subject to that's a, it's a bit like I'm sort of throwing buns at an elephant here with my <laughs> suggestion but I'm saying no, that in I some small way notifications in actually some small is a good idea way, because I, I've, I've deleted to, the Twitter app a long time ago so I yeah. wouldn't get notifications I okay, have to actively okay. go into my browser and log into Twitter wow. to make it harder yeah. for myself to do it um, but you know it's all still there waiting for me Sometimes yeah. I don't even yeah. read it. I just I let it go. And it's the comments under articles as well. I think if you look at the comments that women get under our articles, they're overwhelmingly far more negative and far yeah, more well, critical of us as people. Yeah, and also, the, well, this is where I think media, um, uh, the media, the the companies and all that have an obligation to their journalists. Why should uh, their Why should journalists be expected to? Um, write articles and often uh, media proprietors and editors are more than happy for people to become more personal because readers like that and then that they're subject to that extraordinary abuse without moderation. There it's is, not right. It, that That is something absolutely to be looked at in 2020. Razan, did you have a low this year? Or was um, it all wonderful? Yes, I mean, I did. I... <laughs> I like I would say, for example, that uh, addicti- addictive to social media, it is something I didn't like. And I was for a while and I wanted to change because it's not healthy. And you feel sometimes you are isol- you are isolating yourself. So that's something I really need to change in 2020. And I, I, I have already started. But I like the other thing on personal level, um, like, for example, I had. Um, an idea for a documentary on refugees and I have approached 10 production companies and I received 10 no's, you know, so that was kind of really low moment. Um, Like, it's just, it means that now for next year, it means something I have to change the approach, I have to change the idea, all of that. Is is it fair to ask, did they turn you down for a particular reason? Did they give reasons? Um, what I would uh, just trying to understand why is because they wanted to approach this particular subject in a different way, I think. And maybe I needed to provide a more creative way in how we tackle this particular subject because it is fading away in general and they wanted maybe another uh, way of talking about it. The other one I would say it is very personal is when my dad um, was in hospital got sick and I, uh, I was unable to see him. I was even unable to call him or to say, like, to, to make sure he's fine, he's not. So I, like, it was left for maybe two days, you know, out of contact. And I know he's sick and I know he's in hospital. That was a very difficult moment. And especially, I can't go, you know, I can't go to Syria, like, just like anybody else, like, book your ticket and then go. It is very difficult. How is he? He's very good now. He's he's yeah, a great man. He's just now going back and being very healthy right now. That is great. Mm-hmm. Alison, did I ask for you alone? No, but I mean, I'm what I was talking about at the start of the year of perspective is is listening uh, to Razan gives fabulous perspective. You know, I I so much admiration for you and what Thank you've you. done and how you've gone about doing it and. Um, you know, it really does make you realise how how bloody well off we are, and we and we don't we don't realise it, and we're not we're not grateful enough for it. Uh, as regards my highs and lows, I sat in this studio um, uh, this time last year, and you, Cathy Sheridan, said we were talking about the abortion referendum, and you said 
He said you were never going to write a book on that. <laughs> I was dying and, to read uh, a yes, book about it, yes. at the time, I actually had possibly had the first meeting about writing a book on it um, with Alva Smith, Orlo Connor and Gonya Griffin, the three co-directors of And you never said a Together word. Yes, I never said a word. I feel betrayed. And I'm not, I'm not that well known for my... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Discretion. Discretion. <laughs> That's the word. I can't even think of the word, let alone practice it. Anyway, um, so... It was a real to to have got to the to have it done in that space of time, and I'm very proud of it. And uh, it was a really exciting project. Um, and I felt briefly, you know, that it was an incredible thing that that uh, that this was done, uh, given our history on abortion in this country. And I thought that those three women and all the women all over the country, um, and who knocked on so many doors and persuaded so many people, just did an amazing thing in such a female-dominated and female-led campaign and that it hadn't got the recognition it should. And that was my motivator. So my low, if you like, is that there was that. And I also just had a lot, I think it's to do with the, the, the age, young kids, um, older relatives... Uh, I've had an awful lot going on personally in that way uh, and writing the book my low is that I'm absolutely shattered <laughs> and I would like if I may uh, give a, sh- a personal shout out to my magnificent sister-in-law Geraldine it was my turn our turn I should say to host Christmas this year and uh, she did it beautifully in her home uh, and I shall be eternally grateful to her for that Geraldine we all love you thank you so much for doing that now we're going to Race to the highs so that we'll end on a lovely, cheerful note. Jennifer, let's start with you. Well, my highs are, are not as exciting as Alison's, but, um, but you know, just from a professional point of view, honestly, the thing that made me happiest this year was that I spent a lot of the year walking around unfamiliar places talking to strangers. And I love it. Nothing makes me happier than walking up to somebody in the street and going, would you have a view on? Would you talk to me about? And you just hear the most amazing things from people. You meet fascinating people. You get incredible stories. And I want to be everybody's best friend when I meet them and I'm taking their number and I'm, I'll follow you now on Twitter your meals stay in touch so I loved that uh, that side of things and, and on a much more personal level um, something I've been talking about doing for years and years I finally did this year which was I learned to sail a boat by myself uh, and it was really scary not least getting into a wetsuit at the age of 44 and uh, climbing into my daughter's uh, little boat and getting um, a 19 year old to teach me but it was such a high there is nothing like the adrenaline rush of being in charge of a, a small vessel out in the ocean uh, all by yourself so that was my high that was amazing Rosanne, did you learn anything new this year? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I It was a good year for me. Actually, for me, every year in Ireland is a good year for me. And I like part of it, yeah, I feel I feel grateful. And I appreciate every little thing, small little thing in my life. I find it huge and big. So uh, this year was like, I had like really, um, as I said, like ups and downs, lows and highs. But I'd say in terms of highs, um, I am involved right now in a program called Community Sponsorship. And uh, this program is, I believe, it's going to really change the way to deal with refugees and how we integrate them into the society. And I am now already a, a, number of, a member of a group that we organize ourselves, we raise funding, we provide house, and then we host a family, a refugee family coming from a refugee camp. So like, let's say from Lebanon or from Jordan or Turkey, and it will be expanded later on. So I think this program really important and it's so deep to my heart that Although raising awareness is important, posting on social media is important, but this is not enough. 
I think it is more important to do act, to do actions and change real um, real things, change the life of these people and make them start a new life. So that program is really give me a very positive push to believe that actually when we have collective uh, will and, and solidarity, we can achieve, we can do something. So that's one of the things that I already started and I hopefully for next year it will be expanded more and more. Razan, that is amazing. Now, Alison, you, you've already incorporated your high about the book. Which seamlessly. Is, seamlessly. And it's called, it's a yes, exclamation mark. And it actually is a handbook as well as a great read. So if you haven't read it, buy it and keep it and pass it on or buy one for everybody you know. It's wonderful. Thank you, Cathy. Alison, Jennifer, Razan, thank you so much for that run through the year and for all your personal insights and professional insights. You all are powerhouses of energy and role models and inspiration to a lot of people. And thank you for all that. Thank you. Thank you, Cathy. That's all we have time for. Thanks to our guests for casting their eyes back over 2019 and the last decade. We are grateful to Alison O'Connor, Jennifer O'Connell and Razan Ibrahim for their contributions. We hope all of our listeners enjoy the New Year celebrations and hopefully get to reflect on your own year gone by and what word best sums it up for you. And I hope it isn't poxy. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and we'll be back with a preview of 2020 for women, which you won't want to miss. Until then, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.